So this morning I want to tell you about two Bibles. One I'm going to guess you are more or less familiar with, probably not by name, but the upside of it is you've definitely experienced the result uh, of this uh, Bible. The other is one that you may have heard of, but I don't know that you have personal experience with. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping most of us don't, but I'm guessing that more of us do than we wish maybe was reality. The first is the Robert Estienne Biblia. It was printed in 1955, or 1555, excuse me, and has radically changed the way we read the Bible today. Estienne had the idea of adding numbers to create chapters and verses. So think of a verse that you've memorized. Okay, so think of a verse you've memorized, right? Some of you are going all John 3, 16 right now. Some of you are doing Psalm 23. Some of you are thinking, I haven't memorized a verse. Let me just throw this one up here, John 11:35. We can all memorize this one even today. Listen, the reason you can memorize a verse is because of Estienne's Biblia. Before him, we had no chapters and no verse uh, identifiers. He also made, uh, thankfully, this possible too, John 3, 16 signs of sporting events. Uh, without him, we couldn't do that. So, uh, listen, uh, the other Bible is known as the Jefferson Bible, which is kind of the opposite of Estienne's Bible because instead of adding numbers, Jefferson cut verses. He removed miracles from his Bible. In February of 1804, Jefferson clipped his favorite passages out of the Bible and created his own Bible with them. He included the teachings of Jesus, but he removed the miracles. So what we talked about last week, water to wine, not in his Bible. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, healing of the officer's son, not in his Bible. All the way through to the resurrection of Jesus, not in his Bible. Every miracle in between. So when Jefferson gets to uh, the end of John's gospel, his version ends with the stone rolled in front of the tomb. Jesus never comes back out. So my guess, here's what, so when I said something at the, at the beginning, my guess is that none of us have actually cut a Bible, uh, literally taken scissors or, or to a Bible but it seems like we do something similar uh, when we pick and choose our favorite verses and we ignore the passages that we don't like or say something that we don't want it to say or even if there's something miraculous in there that we kind of want to explain away, we want to make it sound a little more, uh, you know, less supernatural, I should say. So instead of living a life that resembles the supernatural standards set in Scripture, we want to read a Bible that looks a little bit more like, I mean, it looks like us. Right? I mean, it resembles our lives. Just last week in our first step class, Walt Daly, uh, who was in the class last week, one of our students in the class, uh, and I put this on your notes, so it's on your notes this morning with permission from uh, Walt, but what he said, something I thought was so uh, incredible, he said, when I was growing up, and this is on your notes, I sat in my closet and read the Bible, but never saw anyone who looked like what I was reading. Think about that. I never saw anyone who looked like what I was. This is your first Sunday with us, by the way. My name is Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And I just want to say it is good to be home. Uh, uh, Sean and I arrived home physically a week ago Monday. The rest of me came later this week uh, into the United States. It feels like we're just, I'm just catching up at any rate. But listen, we got to see and be involved in what God is doing in India uh, because you generously support the work here and together we get to support the work there. Plus, I thought it was really cool, we were able to see some of the extraordinary signs that you're only going to see in India. I mean, if you've never listened, you, this is incredible. And we got to leave some things that really you only get, you know, uh, when you're here. So, 
Um, Listen, if you're joining us online, I really hope this series on miracles is helpful to you. And I can only tell you how encouraging it is when someone in in the room on a Sunday morning comes up and says, hey, I just want to let you know I've been watching you online for weeks and I had to come and find out if this place is really what it's really like. And so if that's you and you are able in the next few weeks to attend, maybe Easter will be a good Sunday for you to be here. that, uh, that you'll come up and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you and uh, that you were watching online. That would be great. So last week, Jason kicked off our miracle series, uh, and we're going to sit in the Gospel of John for all the way up through Easter, uh, and we are going to look at the seven miracles that John recorded in his Gospel to remind ourselves uh, of what Jesus is capable of doing in a person's life because we all know that Jesus is still capable of doing everything that he has ever done, right? Okay, so you and me, we agree on that. All right. Uh, That sounded like my wife even. Um, (laughs) It is always good when your wife is, at least there's one person in the room who's agreeing it's your wife. Uh, I just want to say that. But, right, Jesus can still do today what he has always done. Do we, I mean, do we believe that? All right, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here because today we land in John chapter 4. So check this out, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. Once more he, being Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, You will never believe. And the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, go. Your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And when he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon. That was when his fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And then John finishes it with this. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea. Uh, to Galilee. So back to the very first verse, 46, once more he came to Cana. So Jesus comes back to the site of the first miracle that John records in his gospel. And a certain royal official, a nobleman, comes to see Jesus. But this isn't a Roman soldier making an official government visit to a visiting religious leader. I just want to tell you what we might miss that makes this scene a little ridiculous. The words, and this is on your notes because I want to make sure you get this, royal official implies that he's quite likely a royal official in King Herod's service, most likely even reported directly to King Herod. That's who this guy is. And it would be an understatement to say that in first century Israel, royal officials and itinerant Jewish rabbis ran in different circles, okay? I hope you can pick up on that. And verse 46 lets us know where he's come from. He's come from Capernaum, which is, and I want to make sure you get this, 20 miles away. One scholar said, there could be no more improbable scene in the world than an important official hurrying 20 miles to beg a favor from a village carpenter. Why did he do that? Where is Jesus? What's the first bit of information we get? If you've got your Bible open, if you don't have your Bible open with you, if you've got your phone and you've got the Version app, you can check the events. We're right there. All these verses are there. But in verse 46, we find out that Jesus has come back 
to the place where he turned water to wine. Listen, do you suppose this royal official had heard about that? Do you suppose there's anybody in the area who hadn't heard about what had happened at that wedding? And so he's coming to see Jesus in verse 46 because his son was sick. Although, I want to point out the word in verse 49 is not the same as in verses 46 and 47. In verses 46 and 47, we're receiving this report, kind of an official report, a son is sick. In verse 49, that word changes and he pleads, please come now before my little boy. We don't catch that in the English, but that's what he says, before my little boy dies. And I wonder if you feel the weight of those words. Even though my kids are now adults, I can still feel the heaviness of heart that goes with having a child in distress. And I just want to say, if you're a parent, you already know this. Your child does not have to be on the verge of death for your heart to be heavy for them to understand this. I can remember fevers of 102. 102, just saying it even now. And I've got to tell you, I would go immediately into full-blown panic. I did not pass go. I did not collect $200. I was beside myself. And the doctor would say, it's not an emergency. (laughs) And my thought was, listen, dude, if this was your child with 102-degree fever, it wouldn't be an emergency for me, okay? But this isn't your child. This is my child. And I remember when Casey was going to have her tonsils removed, and I was a wreck, and I kept being told, don't worry about it. It's okay. They do this every day. It's routine. It's a minor surgery. You ever been told that? Don't worry. It's a minor surgery. And I remember talking to my friend Jimmy Borton, and I was leaning hard on him because I was being told, it's a minor surgery. And it did nothing to settle my heart. And then Jimmy said something to me that put it into perspective. For me, maybe it will for you. Wanted to share it with you. Minor surgery is what they're doing on someone else's child. Nobody ever does minor surgery on your child. It's someone else's child. Uh, And I'll tell you, it did make me feel less concerned, but it did make me feel a little more normal about it. And this guy's child wasn't just sick. Verse 47, this royal official was beside himself because his little boy was close to death. So I just want to pause for a moment so that we remember we live in a fallen world. And God has given us this gift called free will which sometimes works for us and sometimes it doesn't. And we know that God loves us. But the flip side of that is there is an enemy who hates us. And we all love to point to John 10, 10. It's one of those verses we hear over and over. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we love this part of the verse. Almost to the fact that we forget this part of the verse. Because we have an enemy who hates us. When I was in youth ministry, I would remind our students, God does not hate you and Satan does not love you. And I had to remind them because sometimes they forgot. And I think sometimes as as adults, we forget as well because the way things are going in life. And, And Paul would tell the church in Rome, listen, this doesn't mean you live in fear in Romans 8. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? By the way, this doesn't mean that nobody is. It doesn't mean that nobody's against us. And we need to remember that we have this enemy. When we make this determination that we are going to belong to Jesus and we we give ourselves to him and we are reborn into his kingdom, our rebirth happens on a battlefield between good and evil. And we will choose a side. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, 
He said, and this is on your notes, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. And I'm just telling you, when you choose to be on God's side, it doesn't mean you don't have to worry about anyone getting sick anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about accidents or, or things, because bad things happen to good people, which is why in verse 47, it says the royal official begged him which means he kept begging him. He didn't just say it once. He kept saying it over and over and over again because desperate times call for desperate measures, especially when it's your child, your son, your little boy who is at the point of death. Listen, most parents know when our kids get that kind of sick, we will move heaven and earth. We will do whatever it takes, even if it means coming before the maker of heaven and earth. We will do anything. Mark Batterson writes this. The royal official who probably reported, reported to Herod himself defied cultural protocol when he sought an audience with the one rumored to turn water into wine. He subjected himself to someone over whom he had political power. And I, will I, I tell you that he subjected himself. He put himself under the authority of Jesus because God does not respond well to blackmail or bribery. He will, however, be moved by a humble heart who comes before him recognizing his sovereignty and asking humbly. So we're going to pause because I love these questions. I want to ask you these. Uh, the first one is, who's the royal official in your life? When you look at the story of your life, who's the royal official? Let me ask it another way. Who is out of your league? Who is it in your life that is out of your league? Or who do you have no business doing business with? Here's how you can tell who they are in your life. Who is it that makes you nervous to be around them because of who they are? Or the thought of them in your general vicinity just kind of freaks you out? You know, I mean, just the thought of them. I just want, I'm, part of this maybe for you today, your next step is don't, listen, don't be intimidated by their power. Because if in 2019, if, and that's a huge if, but if you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, important powerful people might just seek an audience with you because you have something to offer that power cannot control and money cannot buy. And they know it. They know you have it. And they don't understand it because they don't get what it's like to be a person who walks on a day-to-day -day basis, has this personal relationship with God, who loves you and who knows you and walks with you every day. And they don't know what that is, but they know you have it, and they want to know about it. Then Jesus says something kind of cold. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And what I want to make sure you catch is he's not aiming that right at this royal official, but it's kind of this spiritual lament over the condition of the people uh, in general, Jews and Gentiles of his day. But look at what happened next. The royal official said, sir, please come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, go, your son will live. I've been to Cana. I have a bottle of wine from Cana. Because, you know, Jesus changed water into wine in Cana. Kind of a preacher joke, I guess. Uh, I just keep it because I think it's kind of funny. Uh, and in case anyone ever asked me if I was there, I can say yes. Uh, but do you remember? Do you remember how far I said it was from Capernaum to Cana? You wrote it down. How far is it? 20 miles. Listen, 20 miles is no big deal in a car, right? We've all driven 20 miles. 
to get somewhere for something. It's no big deal. Kind of a big deal, but not a deal breaker to get on a bike. It's doable. It's not undoable to get on a bike and go 20 miles. But when's the last time you walked 20 miles for anything? And know that Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So from Capernaum to Cana is all uphill. It is a 20-mile uphill walk. Why am I pointing this out? On your notes, I want to make sure you get this. Some miracles take sweat equity. Your effort doesn't make them happen, but your lack of effort may keep them from happening. Dallas Willard said this. It's on your notes. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So to be clear, and I want to be crystal clear on this, we do not earn miracles, but certainly effort is part of the equation. And many people follow Jesus to the point of, of inconvenience, but they don't go any further than that. I mean, we're willing to follow him as long as it doesn't mess up our plans too much. If there's a lesson to be learned from this royal official, it's this. Don't wait for the miracle to come to you. Make every effort to get in close proximity to the healing power of Jesus. Last week, Jason shared this quote. I want to make sure you see it again. Do not seek miracles. Listen, we don't come here looking. We're not here because we're chasing miracles. Follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you'll eventually find yourself in the middle of some miracles. And I think it's important for us to remember that. Right? Verse 49 says, the royal, the royal official, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the next thing that we read is, the man took Jesus at his word and he departed. He believed Jesus and he started home. And how many miles is it back home to Capernaum? 20 miles. And I'll tell you what, if you don't remember anything else from this message, you are sure going to remember how far it is from Capernaum to Cana. So he's on this 20-mile way, and his servants had left home because they want to tell him as quickly as they possibly can. And so they meet somewhere along the way, and because his servants want him to know his son is alive, they check their watches, and they determine, holy cow, this was time change weekend. And coincidentally, your son, reflecting the time change, was healed at the exact same time that Jesus said the words. Coincidentally. I say coincidentally because I want to make sure you catch this as well. I've heard this, and, uh, and so this is a freebie. Coincidences are when God chooses to remain anonymous. You can just kind of put that in your pocket. You'll need that one later on, okay? Future reference. Most of the miracles Jesus performed are in person. He's right there. The person is right there. What's going to happen is all right in front of him. But the second miracle redefined reality by defying the dimensions of space and time. It is a long-distance miracle in real time. Jesus speaks the words, and 20 miles away at the exact same time, a healing occurs. And I wonder if one of the reasons we have a hard time believing in miracles is because we believe that the God uh, is subject to the natures of law, the natures of law that he instituted. We can only be in one place at one time. So it's kind of hard to imagine that God is everywhere all the time. But the God who designed our universe with four dimensions does not exist within them. just want to make sure you get that. We are trapped in four dimensions. He, however, is not. Verse 53, he and his whole household believed. How could they not? 
I want to remind you of a verse Jason shared last week as well. And every time that we look at miracles or believe one has happened in our life, I think it's important for us to remember what John wrote, that, uh, that these miracles, other signs uh, occurred that aren't even recorded in the book, but these are written, these miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just by believing that these miracles occurred and recognizing what that means about who Jesus is, that you may have life in his name because you have believed this. And I just want to say, this has always been God's plan. It has never not been God's plan that you would just trust him. It goes all the way back to the garden. You know the story all the way back at the beginning. We were created to have this relationship with God. And somewhere along the line, we blew it. We blew it, and it caused this separation, a a, a barrier between us and God. And in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, we know what it was. It was Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of this tree that they were told not to eat from started the problem. But we know that's not the problem today. That allowed sin in to the world. We allowed it into our lives. I make decisions that are sinful, that cause a separation between me and God. You make decisions. It's, not, it's you. It's not Adam and Eve. It's you. You've made decisions that create a distance between you and God. And our sin causes us to back away from him. And so we know that we've got something to do with it. So we try to fix it ourselves. And we try to be better and not use bad words and, you know, look at our Bible sometimes, bring it to church, and be good enough to get back to God. But we get frustrated because we keep coming up short. And the frustration is this. We know if this goes beyond this lifetime, this separation, if we're separated for eternity outside of this life, that's called hell. That's what hell is. Hell is the eternal separation between us and God. The good news of our faith, and we're going to celebrate this event in six weeks. Rich mentioned it's right. I mean, it's six weeks away. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to do something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. And so he died on the cross to make a way possible for us to get back to God. And I just want to say this. Some of us are here this morning, and some of us are here this morning. But we all started here. All of us started on this side of the cross. None of us were born over here. All of us struggle with sin. We all had a sin debt we couldn't repay. But some of us have made some decisions about who Jesus is going to be in our life, and it changed everything. The Bible says there are three decisions that you need to make if you want to go from here to there. And the first one is this. You have to believe. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe Easter is true? Did Jesus really live a sinless life? Did he really die on a cross for your sins because you couldn't die for yourself? You couldn't do anything about this sin problem. And so God sent his son. Do you believe that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for you? And then three days later, God raised his son from the dead. Because if you believe that, you will not perish but you will have eternal life. That's what we read. The second thing that the Bible tells us that we need to do is we need to repent. And it's just a reminder, this word is just a Bible word. By the way, that means that we change our mind, that we change the direction of our lives, that we own this thing. It's not God's fault we're where we are. It's not God's fault we're separated from him. It's not my mom and dad's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's not my husband's or my wife's fault. It's not anybody's fault but mine. And God, I'm repenting of my sins, 
and I'm telling you I'm sorry, and I'm telling you I'm going to change my ways because I want my sins to be wiped out and my life to look different than it does right now. Third thing the Bible talks about is being baptized. It is our first response. It is the initial response we make to God. Grace is what saves us. It's what we, it goes all the way back to John 3, 16. That's what saves you. But our response when we believe and when we repent is that we would be baptized and we would make this commitment to God uh, of our lives in the waters of baptism so that we may receive the, according to Acts 2.38, so that we may receive the forgiveness of sins and we may also have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, listen, you've never made that decision. And last week, two young men did. They came over yet last Sunday afternoon and were baptized into Christ. Their family was here. Their grandpa did it. It was awesome. If you've never made that decision, please let us help you. Please. I'm asking that you let us help you make that decision. Don't leave this room this morning with I will be right down here afterwards. I'll be right up front. Please don't leave with And I promise, listen, I'm not going to force anything. I'm not going to make you do something you're not ready to do. We'll talk about it. If you believe you're ready to make that decision, we just want to help you take your next step. How far was it to Capernaum, from Capernaum to Cana? 20 miles. I want to help you take one of your first steps on that 20-mile journey of getting to Jesus. Look at how John concludes the story. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming, from, uh, after coming from Judea to Galilee. What city is Jesus in again? He's in Cana. The second miracle. I say that because I want to point out what John seems to highlight. The second miracle happened within a stone's throw of the first miracle. Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird the second one would happen so close to the first one? I wonder if it's because it's hard... <laughs> It's hard not to have faith in Cana because the smell of wine is still in the air. You ever wonder that? I mean, there are places to go where it's hard not to have faith. You ever wonder if Daniel ever went back? Past, so in the Old Testament, Daniel in the lion's den, you ever think he wandered back past the lion's den and thought to himself, I just still, I can't get over that. Do you, think, do you think Peter ever rode back out onto the Sea of Galilee, got in a boat and rode back out to the, to the place where he got out of the boat? And started to walk to Jesus and thought to himself, I just can't, man. I took a couple steps. I can't believe I took a couple of steps. Do, do, you th do you ever wonder if maybe any of the 12 went back to that spot where Jesus fed the, the, the multitude? And they just maybe sat on the ground there and looked around at where the people no longer were, but where they were one day. And they thought to themselves, how in the world did he do that? I mean, it just seemed to be coming out of nowhere. Food was everywhere, and all that we've got just can't, man, I can't get over, and it happened right here. I grew up in Columbus, and when I go back, if I have time to do this, I'll drive by the house I grew up in, because that's the house where I saw my mom and dad live out their faith, and that's the house where on a Tuesday night, I can still remember sitting on the sofa next to my brother, and we made this decision to make Jesus the Lord of our life. I can still see it the place where I grew up. And I'll drive by the church where I grew up going, where I got to serve for 18 and a half years. And I will tell you, I made significant spiritual decisions while I was at that place as a child growing up. And as a young man, I made uh, significant decisions about the kind of man I was going to be, the kind of husband I was going to be, the kind of father I was going to be. Sometimes 
I go past the house where our children were born. And I remember praying, holding them as infants just back from the hospital, not a year old, and praying about the person that they would one day grow up and marry. Because I was pretty sure that even though I had no idea who it was, that God did, and it was quite likely that person was already on the earth somewhere. And so I started praying that they would follow Jesus. And I will just tell you that today both of my children are grown and married, and those prayers were answered faithfully by God because of the man and the, the, man and the woman that they married. Who are um, My son-in-law is a man of God. My daughter-in-law is a woman of God. And I'm telling you this because we forget, if when we forget the faithfulness of God, it's easy to lose our faith. It's why we need to go back to the miracles that God has already done in our lives. So for some of you, your next step in your faith this morning is just to remember what God has already done in your life. That's why every week we remember. We come to a time of communion where we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We just stop everything that we're doing. And we say, we're going to stop now, and we're going to go back to the decision we made about who Jesus was going to be in our lives, and we are going to recommit ourselves to that journey regardless of how off track we've been this week, regardless of where our journey has taken us, the decisions that we've made that were decisions we should not have made over the last whatever in your life. Isn't that Listen, isn't that part of the miracle of the cross and the empty tomb? That Jesus is still changing lives today. Not the least of which is yours and mine. And so we go back to the cross because the cross isn't for those who believe they're good enough. It's for those of us who know that we're not. But that the cross, Jesus did something miraculous for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so every week we travel back to the cross and the empty tomb that we might be reminded of who we chose him to be in our lives. Let's go to him. God, thank you for your love for us. And we come to this moment and it goes deathly quiet here because we want to remember what you have done that has changed us so drastically that we can look back and see who we were and know that we're not there anymore. And we can look forward and see where we have yet to go and know that we're not there yet. And the miracle seems to be that you keep changing us into the image of Jesus. And so, Jesus, thank you for giving your life for ours. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming and filling our lives and giving us direction. Father, thank you for allowing your son to pay a debt that we could not pay for ourselves. It is a miracle that we are here this morning like this without cheapening that word at all. So God, thank you. May we, as we hold these emblems that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus that were given for us on the cross, may we be drawn back to that moment. May we